before we get into the the study for today, uh, let's bow our heads and our hearts together, and let's come before the Lord and and let's seek uh, for His guidance here this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you so very very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for your love, for your mercy, for the most precious gift of Jesus, for the Holy Spirit angels that you send to help us. Uh, We know that you've given the greatest gift that can be given. You've given all heaven so that we may be saved. And Father, we are so very, very grateful and we humbly, very humbly thank you from our hearts. We thank you uh, for taking care of our needs our necessities, our shelter, uh, our, our food, our clothing, uh, those things that are needed in this temporal world. We are thankful also, Lord, that you provided a book, a book for heaven. And as John Wesley said, uh, I want to know how to get to heaven, and God has provided the book that tells me what is needed. And so we praise you for the Holy Bible. And Father, we thank you also for the church, for our friends and our loved ones. We are very thankful. And we come before you, uh, Father, we pray that you will be very near to our families, the church members, be near our neighbors as we uh, try to minister to their needs and spread the gospel before it's too late. The world is coming to an end here. This conflict will soon be over. And we wish not only ourselves to be in the kingdom, but those around us. And so we lift those up, those people up to you uh, today. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you will give each of us the Holy Spirit and discernment as we study here today. We pray that the Holy Spirit will be very near those who couldn't be with us today, be with those who are sick and ill, and uh, heal them according to thy will. And Lord, as we study this theme out about sin. We pray for enlightenment and that the Holy Spirit will show us where we uh, are coming up short, where we're missing the mark and uh, give us the, the that supernatural uh, power as we claim your promises to be overcomers and be a reflection of Jesus to to all around us that they may be drawn to him. Please give me the words to speak today. And I thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer. For it is asked in the name of Jesus, who is worthy. Amen. Amen. As I said earlier, this is a series, the first in a number of lessons, a series that I have entitled, The Sin Issue. The Sin Issue. Uh, the title of this particular message is The Sinfulness of Sin. And that's an interesting thing, isn't it? The Sinfulness of Sin. While working on the subject of this series, uh, I came across an old hymn that I really liked the words to. And I shared it. I shared it with uh, Deb, and I, I actually posted it uh, um, what was the singer's name? It's Gary, is it Chapman? Gary Chapman uh, sang it, I think beautifully. And I shared that. Um, 
I really like the words to it, and I think it'd be a great theme song for this series of studies, but, well, actually, for any series about Jesus, right? The hymn is entitled, Whosoever Meaneth Me. The sad thing is, I think that it is not in any of the SDA, uh, SDA hymnals that I can find, and I think that's a real shame. Um, the hymn was composed by a guy he was referred to as Smiling Ed McConnell, who was born in 1892 in Atlanta, Georgia, to a Baptist minister, and his his father's name was Lincoln McConnell. But Ed worked with his father, who was a song director for evangelism. He worked for an evangelist in the Baptist church for many years. Uh, but during one meeting in 1910, it was a very cold day, it was below zero. They were in Iowa, um, and and it was there that this 18-year-old Ed McConnell, he was humming to himself, and his father, who was opening his mail nearby, he asked what he was doing. And he said, oh, just another song aborning, Dad, he said. Aborning means being born. And that evening they introduced, Whosoever surely meaneth me, to the audience of their uh, evangelistic meeting. And it, and it became the theme song of their campaign. And what's wonderful is that it's this song, it's so simple, but yet it points out the, the wonderful benefits that Christ offers whosoever comes to Him. I want to read the words of this him to you. Stanza 1 says, I am happy today and the sun shines bright. The clouds have been rolled away. For the Savior said, Whosoever will may come with Him to stay. Number 2, He goes on, He says, All my hopes have been raised. Oh, His name be praised. His glory has filled my soul. I've been lifted up and from sin set free. His blood hath made me whole. And number three, oh, what wonderful love, what grace divine that Jesus should die for me. I was lost in sin for the world I pined, but now I am set free. And the chorus is whosoever surely meaneth me. Surely meaneth me, oh, surely meaneth me. Whosoever surely meaneth me, whosoever meaneth me. It's a very simple song, but it's it's like a perfect song. <laughs> it's so true. It's the gospel right there. Now, the inspiration for this song, it probably comes from Revelation 22, uh, verse 17. And that's where you know Christ is is inviting everyone, whosoever. It says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. What a wonderful promise, friends. It can bring total and complete restoration to the worst wreck of humanity, even though, you know, we say, as Paul did, I am the chief of sinners, don't we? But whosoever will 
may find healing and victory in the grace of Jesus. Praise the Lord. Christ's grace is sufficient for even me. It surely meaneth me. I was thinking about this, the songs of this this hymn, Whosoever. And while reading John chapter 8, I connected another verse with the word whosoever. In John 8, Jesus was having a discussion with the Jews, of course. That's what his habit was. And as seemed always the case, his words had offended them. But some were impressed with his words, and they believed in Jesus. If we go to John chapter 8, let's look at verses 31 and 32. John 8, verses 31 and 32. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Right? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And those words, that right there, make you free, that was really irritating to the Jews when he made that statement. I want to share something with you. In fact, I'm going to share a lot with you today from the book, The Desire of Ages. One of the, I think the greatest book on the life of Jesus that has been penned outside of the Bible. Marvelous book. And in fact, I think it actually is a book of prophecy. Right. But from the Desire of Ages, page 466, notice this. These words that I just quoted here, John 8, 31, 32, these words offended the Pharisees. The nation's long subjection to a foreign yoke, they disregarded and angrily exclaimed, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus looked upon these men, the slaves of malice, whose thoughts were bent on revenge, and sadly answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever, there's that word again, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And so I came across this, and for a moment that solemn connection of the song, that hymn, and the words of Jesus in this verse, they really grabbed my mind. And I thought, whosoever surely meaneth me. Jesus said, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Whosoever surely meaneth me. Let's look at John 8. Let's look at verses 34 to 36. Jesus here, he says, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Now I want to point out to you friends that the Greek language here of this verse, the Greek is very explicit here. 
when Jesus says, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, it's better rendered as, everyone who continues to commit sin is the bondservant of sin. The English translation of committeth sin really is too weak for that Greek meaning, which is really often the case. Um, the English language may be understood around the world, but it, it's just it's just not as good as the Greek or the Hebrew in in its descriptions, in the deep meanings. Jesus does not say here, friends, that a single act of sin enslaves a person to a life of sin, but it can lead to a life of sin. Now, think about this. Let's think about this. If I commit any act, let's use, let's use the principle, Bible principle of common sense reasoning here, okay? If I commit any act just one time, would it be correct to say that I am a slave of that act? No. Now consider this. There may be another way of kind of looking at it. To commit sin, and that's the Greek word poion, to commit sin is the opposite of to do the truth. You read in John 3.21. Let's think of it that way. If I do the truth one time, is it accurate to say that I always do the truth? Okay? No. Now I want to read to you something. This is the Bible commentary of John Gill... Um, about this committeth sin in John chapter 8. He says, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, which must be understood not of one that commits a single act of sin, though ever so gross, as did Noah, Lot, David, Peter, and others, who yet were not the servants of sin, or of such who sin through ignorance, weakness of the flesh, and the power of Satan's temptations, and especially who commit sin with reluctance, the spirit lusting against it, nor indeed of any regenerate persons, though they are not without sin. He's talking about those who have been born again. Nor do they live without the commission of it in thought, word, or deed. And though they fall into it, they do not continue and live in it, but rise up out of it through the grace of God and by true repentance. And so are not to be reckoned the servants of sin or to be of the devil. But this is to be understood of such whose bias and bent of their minds are to sin, who give up themselves unto it and sell themselves to work wickedness, who make sin their trade, business, and employment, and are properly workers of it, and take delight and pleasure in it. These, whatever liberty, they promise themselves are the servants of corruption. They are under the government of sin that has dominion over them, and they obey it in the lusts thereof, and are drudges and slaves unto it, and will have no other wages at last but death, even eternal death, if grace prevent not. As long as sin is in the life, meaning we continue to commit sin, friends, we are in bondage to it. 
And so, looking back there at that example in John 8, the Pharisees, they were bitterly angry that Christ would offer them freedom. They didn't like the obvious inference that they were captives to anyone, see? The thought was that since they were children of Abraham, they already were free and had a perfect right to all the blessings of God, including possessing the promised land. The reason for the Roman yoke was because of the sinners that were among them, but not because of them, themselves, see? But Jesus denied their claim to be Abraham's seed. That's why they took such great offense to what he said. If we go on in John chapter 8, look at, uh, begin with verse 39. He said, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. In verse 44 he says, Ye are of your father the devil. And so when you look at this context, it's speaking about the spiritual traits of the children being like the spiritual traits of the father. And so one act does not necessarily show a spiritual trait of character. It doesn't show a pattern of behavior that can be likened to bondage or slavery. You see, it is the repetition of these acts that would show a trait of character. Let me share this with you. From Child Guidance, page 199. She says, Any one act, either good or evil, does not form the character. But thoughts and feelings indulged prepare the way for acts and deeds of the same kind. Is that clear? Let's look at Christ's Objects Lessons, page 356. She says, Actions repeated form habits. We know that to be true, don't we? Every one of us has habits. She says, actions repeated form habits. Habits form character, and by the character, our destiny for time and for eternity is decided. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me, okay? One unrepentant sin will cause a person to lose their eternal life. But think about this. Why would a person not repent of one act of sin unless they really are a slave to it and so they repeat it? Does that make sense? If you continually fall and fall and fall to the same sin, it would be reasonable to say that you are indeed a slave to it. Does that make sense? And let's understand this. There is no excuse for sin. That's not what I'm saying at all. There's no excuse for sin. Remember our series of studies that we just finished up about demon possession? We learned that even though one can be demon-possessed, they still retain the ability to choose between right and wrong. You cannot say that the devil made you sin. Even under the greatest of persecution and coercion, you still have a choice whether to sin or not. The decision is yours, friends. And there's no excuse that can be made for sin. No excuse. 
Now, there are those who are ignorant of sin, which God can wink at. But that's not an excuse, you see, because you're still guilty. It's just that God is showing mercy and He's granting you grace. And I'll get more into detail about that later on in this series. Now think about this. Was Jesus contradicting himself a few minutes later? You read in John 8.56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. How could it be that in the same discussion, Jesus said that their father was the devil, remember we just read that, his father is the devil, and moments later their father was Abraham. Was he contradicting himself? Well, friends, the key is having the right understanding of verse 34. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Jesus was saying uh, that Abraham is indeed your literal father. They were lineal descendants of Abraham. That's what he's saying. But the devil is your spiritual father because you do his works and not the works of Abraham whose spiritual father dwells in heaven. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? In Matthew 7 verse 20 he said, Wherefore by their fruits, what? Ye shall know them. Because the fruits show what is really coming from the heart. Their acts were the fruits of their heart, and they were committing evil acts. So their fruits showed who their real, their, their, their real spiritual father was. It was the devil, because the fruits of the Spirit of God are righteousness. And what were they trying to do? They were wanting to kill Jesus. That's unrighteousness. Back to the Desire of Ages, page 466-467 says the Pharisees had declared themselves the children of Abraham. Jesus told them that this claim could be established only by doing the works of Abraham. The true children of Abraham would live as he did, a life of obedience to God. A mere lineal descent from Abraham was of no value. Without a spiritual connection with Him, that's capital H, with God, which would be manifested in possessing the same Spirit and doing the same works, they were not His children. The exact same thing can be said today of those who profess to be Christians, can it? Same kind of attitude. Many Christians say that they are the children of Christ, but what is the gauge to prove it? How many churches today, I'd say thousands of churches, people go to church because it's a habit. It's, well, my grandfather, my great-grandfather went to this church, and my parents went, I grew up going to this church, and that's why they go. And so they claim to be Christians, they claim to be of the lineal, you could say, line of Christ. They've been Christians for several generations, right? you look on in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth what? The will of my Father which is in heaven. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? See, they were doing it because they were, like the Jews, descendants of Abraham, right? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And we'll get in later on in this series uh, defining what sin is. Iniquity, transgressions, those things. Ye that work iniquity. That's outright rebellion. Jesus, friends, was most concerned about us learning the the startling reality concerning sin. In fact, it was the all-absorbing thought in his mind as he hung upon the cross. Back to the Desire of Ages. This time, page 752-753. Christ was the prince of sufferers, but his suffering was from a sense of the malignity of sin, a knowledge that through familiarity with evil, man had become blinded to its enormity. Don't let that pass by you. He was suffering from what? A sense of the malignity of sin, a knowledge that through familiarity with evil, man had become blinded to the evil, its, that's what it means, its enormity. Christ saw how deep is the hold of sin upon the human heart, how few would be willing to break from its power. He knew that without help from God, humanity must perish. And so, friends, really the all-important question that, that needs to be settled in every heart is this. Do my thoughts, my words, my actions testify that my spiritual father is the devil or Abraham? In Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 26, notice what Paul says. He says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That's how we become children of God. By faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, what's he say? Then are ye Abraham's seed. You're his descendant and heirs according to the promise, that promise that was made to Abraham. You see, as a son of Abraham, Christ became in a special sense heir to that those covenant that covenant promise all the covenant promises made to Abraham and by baptism then we acquire kinship to Christ and through him acquire the right to participate in the promises that were made to Abraham so the point Christ is making is that if one is a true child of Abraham if they are Abraham's seed they would be doing the works that Abraham did as he was of spiritual relation to the Father in heaven. So in order to not be a slave to sin, in order to see the true sinfulness of sin, 
one must know Christ and surrender themselves, not just know of Christ. Remember, James says the devils believe and tremble. But surrender themselves, surrender their will to Him. Remember he said, those who do with the will of my Father. Now Satan tries to blur the eyesight, you see, so that we, we see ourselves as a descendant of Abraham, much like the Jews did, and thus we feel that we are spiritually safe. See, because we're favored. Desire of Ages, page 466. Every soul that refuses to give himself to God is under the control of another power. He is not his own. He may talk of freedom, but he is in the most abject slavery. He is not allowed to see the beauty of truth, for his mind is under the control of Satan. While he flatters himself that he is following the dictates of his own judgment, he obeys the will of the prince of darkness. Christ came to break the shackles of sin slavery from the soul. Now friends, when you start to study this subject, as we have, and I'm speaking basically to those who, who uh, many of you who have come through this series that we did about demon possession, I hope the puzzle pieces are starting to click together here. <laughs> you start to, to see a little bit more clearly um, how demon possession plays into this sin issue. Could it be, you know, as we read this, could it be that we don't have the view of the exceeding sinfulness of sin? Could it be that we have fallen into the same mindset of the Jews back then? Tsar of Ages, page 106. Their minds were darkened by transgression. And because in times past the Lord had shown them so great favor, they excused their sins. They flattered themselves that they were better than other men and entitled to His blessings. God's blessings. We're entitled to them. Are we deceiving ourselves, friends, that God will excuse sin in us because of how markedly the Lord has blessed us in the past? We're told this is going to be the condition of of many people before Jesus returns. Signs of the Times, December 17, 1896. In the day of judgment, many will be shut out of the city of God. Notice this. It says, by sins which they suppose to be unworthy of notice. Have you heard the expression, oh, that's a little white lie? Uh, It's just a white lie. Oh, that's just a little thing. Well, you know it's wrong, but you do it. Well, that's just a little thing. It's unworthy of notice. Does God look over any minor thing? (laughs) And when I read that, it reminded me of uh, the prayer in Christ's Objects Lessons, page 159. And from my heart, I cried out this prayer. Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is Thy property. 
Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. Maybe it's why I love the Psalms so much. I can relate. Can you relate? You see the Jews there, when Christ was speaking to them in John 8, they knew that sin was terrible in the Gentiles. I mean, much like we know that sin is terrible in the heathens around us, right? We look at the world and go, oh, a terrible sin. We're such a, so above that. Right? And the Pharisees, they did accept that there were certain lower classes of Jews who were sinners, remember, like Zacchaeus, uh, the tax collectors, Mary Magdalene. But they saw themselves as better than other men. And they'd studied, of course, especially the Pharisees, they, they knew the writings the Old Testament scriptures about God's promises to them and they felt that they were favored and that they were above anything else. Desire of Ages, page 212. The Jewish leaders had studied the teachings of the prophets concerning the kingdom of the Messiah, but they had done this not with a sincere desire to know the truth. In other words, they didn't take the Bible just as it reads, right? They didn't desire to know the truth, but with the purpose of finding evidence to sustain their ambitious hopes. When Christ came in a manner contrary to their expectation, they would not receive Him. And in order to justify themselves, they tried to prove Him a deceiver. And so the assurance that their cause was right, and so with that assurance... If you go on Desire of Ages, she says, they sent messengers. It's just astounding to me, friends. Because this is all going to be repeated before this conflict is over. She says, they sent messengers all over the country to warn the people against Jesus as an imposter. I mean, think about that. Think about the, the links that they went to. Imagine the Bible studies that these messengers gave in hundreds of homes all over Judea and those Bible-based sermons that were delivered in vast numbers of synagogues throughout the land. For what purpose? All to prove that Jesus was an imposter. It's incredible. Incredible. Back to Desire of Ages, page 458. Many who were convinced that Jesus was the Son of God were misled by the false reasoning of the priests and rabbis. Tell me now, friend. I mean, you don't have to tell me. Think about this in your mind. Is the same thing happening within God's professed church today? It's remarkable. That's why I said the Desire of Ages is really a book of prophecy. It's incredible. It's being repeated. These teachers had repeated with great effect the prophecies concerning the Messiah, that he would 
reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously, that he would have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. Isaiah 24, 23, and Psalm 72, 8. Then they made contemptuous comparisons between the glory here pictured and the humble appearance of Jesus. The very words of prophecy were so perverted as to sanction error. Now notice this, what she says. Had the people in sincerity studied the word for themselves, they would not have been misled. You know, it just doesn't matter if you have the Bible sitting on the shelf in your home. You have to pick it up. You have to read it. You have to study it with God's grace and the Holy Spirit to aid you. Desire of Ages, page 106. The Jews had misinterpreted God's promise of eternal favor to Israel. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. That's Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 37. And she says, The Jews regarded their natural descent from Abraham as giving them a claim to this promise. But they overlooked the conditions which God had specified. Before giving the promise, he had said, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Friends, when will we ever learn that God's promises are given only on condition of obedience? When will we learn that sin is exceedingly sinful and no man, no institution, no church can harbor sin and still claim God's promises and God's ownership? There is no halfway point. The choice lies between sin and righteousness, between eternal death and eternal life. Back to Desire of Ages, page 106. To a people in whose hearts His law is written, the favor of God is assured. How do you get the favor of God? If He has written His law in your heart. His character traits, right? She says they are one with Him. But the Jews had separated themselves from God. And this is why she, she gave us this counsel that's found in Manuscript Releases, Volume 10, page 296. Thus the title of today's message. She said, The exceeding sinfulness of sin is to be held before the people just as it is. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. Every sin, however small we may think it is, if held on to and not overcome, it will bar us from the city of God. 
And instead, we will be faced with eternal death. And my mind tries to take it in. The souls who believe that their Father is in heaven, but who is in reality the devil. On that day, they learn they have been deceived and they find themselves shut out of the kingdom. I don't want to be one of them, do you? They believe the lies that you cannot help but sin. They didn't see the sinfulness of sin and by the grace of God endeavor to shut it out of their life. So now they hold an empty sack of filthy garments that cannot and will not be washed by the blood of Christ. Probation has closed and they've lost their life for eternity. Thank God that there is still time right now to reach such souls. Thank God. Manuscript Releases, Volume 12, page 336. We must be terribly in earnest to impress upon every soul that there is a heaven to win and a hell to shun. Every energy of the soul must be aroused to force their passage and seize the kingdom by force. Satan is active and we must be active too. Satan is untiring and persevering and we must be the same. There is no time to make excuses and blame others for our backslidings. No time now to flatter the soul that if circumstances had only been more favorable, how much better, how much easier it would be for us to work the works of God. We must tell even those who profess to believe in Christ that they must cease to offend God by sinful excuses. Friends, have you considered the solemn fact that we have a heaven to win and a hell to shun? Consider that. Each one of us will live forever in heaven or face hell. And after that eternal death, that is to never, never live again. Only as we grasp, I think, friends, this realization um, can we begin to understand the burden Jesus carried as he looked upon those Jews in their deceived condition. There was no malice in his heart, just pity. Desire of Ages, page 92. Speaking of Jesus, he carried the awful weight of responsibility for the salvation of men. He knew that unless there was a decided change in the principles and purposes of the human race, all would be lost. This was the burden of his soul, and none could appreciate the weight that rested upon him. Filled with an intense purpose, he carried out the design of his life that he himself should be the light of men. And, and beloved, and, and unless we gain the reality of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, we most certainly will fit the description of the people Jesus addressed. Back to Desire of Ages, page 106. In view of the light they had received from God, they were even worse than the heathen to whom they felt so much superior. 
the people whom God had called to be the pillar and ground of the truth had become representatives of Satan. Think of that statement there. That's Desire of Ages, page 36. The people whom God had called to be the pillar and ground of the truth had become what? The representatives of Satan. Think about that in our day. Who could that represent? Now, we are warned that Seventh-day Adventists could also become the representatives of Satan. Do you know that? Let me share this. 1888 Materials, page 1644. She says, The Lord would have His people divested of everything unscriptural in regard to the ministry. The men called to the ministry should not be made idols of. They should not be looked upon with superstitious reverence. And because of the power vested in them is more exceedingly sinful, for in committing sin they make themselves the ministers of sin, the agents of Satan, through whom he can work with success to perpetuate sin. And as I study these things, and I study this topic, and I dig and dig and dig as for hidden treasure. The sinfulness of sin. I'm fearful of our tendency to excuse our little sins because we know that we have the truth of the three angels' messages for the world. We must be overcoming, friends, all sin. We need to be overcoming anger and impatience and fretfulness and disorder. And, and as she said there, the worship of men, the love of the world, and myriad of sins that you could list all under selfishness. And don't ever think that it makes any difference that you're a, a Seventh-day Adventist. If you harbor sin in your heart, friends, it will only be held against you in the day of judgment. Pastor Joel, where can we get this view of the, the malignant nature of sin that was the source of Jesus as a great concern for us? How do we get to the point where we truly see the sinfulness of sin? Let me share this with you. The exceeding sinfulness of sin can be estimated only in the light of the cross. Faith I Live By, page 60. The exceeding sinfulness of sin can be estimated only in the light of the cross. Where is the only place we can rightly estimate sin? At the cross. The word there only is an absolutely restrictive word. At the cross we will learn how terrible sin is. We will learn the sinfulness of sin. Desire of Ages, page 685. 
upon Him who knew no sin must be laid the iniquity of us all. So dreadful does sin appear to Him, so great is the weight of guilt which He must bear, that He is tempted to fear it will shut Him out forever from His Father's love. Feeling how terrible is the wrath of God against transgression, He exclaims, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Page 693, same book. Could mortals have viewed the amazement of the angelic host as in silent grief they watched the Father separating His beams of light, love, and glory from His beloved Son, they would better understand how offensive in His sight is sin. If we could have seen that. But see, we are to walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus had always before clearly taught that He and the Father are one. That without the Father He could do nothing. I mean, He plainly stated in John 5 verse 20, The Father loveth the Son and showeth Him all things that He Himself doeth. But as Jesus became the substitute for man, this blessed unity between the Father and the Son was no longer realized by Christ. Because of the sinfulness of sin. Desire of Ages, page 753. And in that dreadful hour, Christ was not to be comforted with the Father's presence. He trod the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with Him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he said, For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's incredible. Incredible. What's Paul saying? He's saying God treated Jesus as if He were a sinner, which He was not. And the truths stated in this verse are among the most profound, I believe, and significant in all the Bible. This verse right here, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it sums up the plan of salvation. It declares the absolute sinlessness of Christ. It, it, it professes the vicarious nature of His sacrifice. It tells of man's freedom from sin through Christ. How Jesus could come to this world as a human being, <laughs> it's incredible in itself. But in all points then, be tempted like as we are, yet without sin. It's an unfathomable mystery. He never committed sin in word, in thought, or in deed. Throughout the entire course of his life, he kept himself from sin in every way. Here on earth, he lived a holy, undefiled, and pure life, ever conscious of being in harmony with the Father's will. 
Jesus, the sinless one, took sinful humanity to his warm heart of love and experienced the temptations that beset us without being in the least degree overcome by them. He identified himself with sinners, the Bible tells us. And when on the cross Jesus came to the hour for which he had entered the world, he was offered to bear the sins of many, we read in Hebrews 9, and became the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. John 1. The guilt of the sins of the world was reckoned to him as if it were all his own. Mark says he was numbered with the transgressors. So Christ became identified with sin. He took it to himself in a real sense and felt the horror of separation from his Father in heaven. And as our sins were reckoned to Christ as if they were his, so his righteousness is reckoned to us as if it were ours. Praise God. Incredible love. Yes, Jesus knew the right value to place upon sin. The Desire of Ages, page 753. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. That we would be blotted out of existence forever. few pages more in Desire of Ages. Amid the awful darkness of Calvary, it says, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, He had relied upon the evidence of His Father's acceptance heretofore given Him. But He was willing to undergo all this because of what? Because of His love for us. Continuing in Desire of Ages, page 755. All that he endured, the blood drops that flowed from his head, his hands, his feet, the agony that racked his frame, and the unutterable anguish that filled his soul at the hiding of his father's face, speaks to each child of humanity, declaring, It is for thee that the Son of God consents to bear this burden of guilt. For thee he spoils the domain of death and opens the gates of paradise. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4, he says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried. And Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And friends, we must be partakers. Of course, we must be partakers of Christ's sufferings and death if we are His heirs. We have a cross to take up and follow in His footsteps. Paul did say, I die daily, didn't he? But we are also to share in His resurrection power and be raised to walk in newness of life. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18-20, Paul says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and set Him at His own right hand in heavenly places. Only in this resurrection power, friends, can we live forever with Jesus. Oh, friends, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. But whosoever will, to the Lord may come. Yes, And whosoever surely meeteth me. Whosoever surely meeteth me. Surely meeteth me. Oh, surely meeteth me. Whosoever surely meeteth me. Whosoever meeteth me. In order to know the sinfulness of sin, we must come to the cross and be taught what sin is and its results. And beloved, that is the hope that I have for this series. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we surely thank you for whosoever. We thank you for Jesus. That He loves us so much. He was willing to be separated from Thee forever so that we may be saved. What incredible love toward us. And we're thankful for Your love because You gave up heaven in Jesus so that we may be saved. Surely John is correct when he says God is love. And so, Father, we pray this morning and ask forgiveness for our sins. We claim the blood that was shed there at Calvary on our behalf. We pray for the resurrection of spiritual life to be seen in our hearts and be placed in our hearts that we may have newness of life. Lord, help us to see the sinfulness of sin and put it far away from us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.